Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. It's good morning. It's really good to be with you all as always again this morning. Uh, as I always say, I'll try my best to uh, keep uh, to speak slower and with less accent. I get a lot of comments sometimes that I talk too fast. And it's funny because if in America, when you're from the South, everyone thinks you talk really slow anyway. So uh, I have a friend from home, a good friend named Jeff Zanotti. Uh, no offense to Sarita, but he talks like a Yankee. Uh, somebody from the Northern United States, if he came and talked to you, you'd be so lost because he speaks so fast, even I can't understand his English. But uh, today we're going to be in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, an unusual uh, passage or an unusual two chapters in Isaiah because it's a narrative text. It's a story. Uh, we leave kind of this prophetic poetry type speaking um, and just tell a story, which is really nice uh, break sometimes. But um, one time uh, Mackenzie and I were in South Africa working at a, a children's camp. And we each, each leader had like a team of, of kids, uh, and we taught them Bible studies and everything, but we also had competitions. And one day we had a competition that was the luau. I don't know if everyone knows the luau, but it's the Hawaiian thing where they hold the horizontal pole and you have to duck under it like this, like you can't bend over. You have to duck your back and go under it. And they move it lower every time um, that... You know, someone goes under it, they move it a little lower, and they move it a little lower. Um, and so we have to choose one kid from our team to do the luau. And uh, our teams are anywhere from like five years old to 17 years old. So I'm thinking, I'm strategizing to win. Uh, and I'm thinking like the five-year-old who's like this tall is the person who needs to do the luau. But one of my kids, like a 14-year-old boy who's taller than me, keeps insisting that he be the luau guy. He's like, please let me do it. I'm going to win. I'm thinking, there's no way. There's kids that are like two feet tall, you know, like less than a meter. And then there's you who's ready to dunk a basketball. And, but he convinces me. And I had absolutely zero belief that he was going to be able to win. Well, for whatever reason, he was unbelievably flexible and strong. And he gets all the way down and beats all the little kids and wins the competition, wins for the, the, a prize for his whole team. They all got chocolate bars. It was really great. Um, but the point of the story is that I did not believe at all that he would be able to win. So when he did, I was very surprised. And unfortunately, in our lives sometimes, and in my life specifically, this is the same way I react to answered prayer. Uh, I pray as if I believe that prayer is going to be answered, and then when it's answered, I'm surprised I'd answered my prayer. Um, and we want to talk about that today. Uh, we're going to see the power of prayer, and we want to see how important believing prayer is. Um, so... Uh, before we get started, we're going to set up just a little bit. We've, we talk about this a lot, but the historical context is important. Uh, and, and these chapters in Isaiah leave out one important point that we want to cover from the other historical books. Um, so Assyria has a new king, Sennacherib, and uh, he is trying to get his empire back under control. Uh, all of the kingdoms around him that he did control have kind of rebelled, and he's trying to bring them back in. And Judah is one of these kingdoms. Um, so... He warns Judah not to resist and just to surrender. He tells King Hezekiah and Judah, don't resist this, just surrender. It'll be better for you. 
Um, but Hezekiah doesn't do that. In Isaiah, we see that he goes to the Lord about this, but we need to see this passage in 2 Kings chapter 18 to understand what he does first. So 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 13 through 16 says, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And I, a king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me, whatever you impose on me I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So what we see here is that before um, Hezekiah turns to the Lord for help, he tries to do everything in his own power to have Assyria relent. Uh, he, he takes this bribe, this a massive amount of treasures, takes it from the uh, Lord's temple, takes it from his own palace, and sends it to King Sennacherib. Funny thing, it doesn't work at all. They take the money, but then just uh, continue to attack anyway. So Judah is the last free state kind of standing now. Um, Israel, the northern kingdom, has been defeated. Tyre, Philistia, uh, and then Egypt, which several times uh, Egypt has came to try to help um, Judah, and they have also been uh, defeated by this powerful empire. So Judah's kind of standing on its own and are pretty much out of options. So the first thing we see in our passage in verses um, in chapter 36, verses 4 through 10, is all of the reasons why Judah has no chance against this great power. In verse 5, um, they point out the fact that uh, Judah has no strategy. It says, Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? So Assyria is saying, All you have is just words. You just keep saying things. You have no strategy to actually defeat us. The next thing they point out in verse 6 is you have no help. He points out that you were depending on Egypt, and it says, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So all these other countries have been defeated. Like There's nobody to help you. You are small and weak, and we are powerful, and there's no one around you left standing to help you. The next thing is Judah has no manpower. This is kind of a sarcastic statement, but the spokesman for the king says, Come now, in verse 8, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. It's a sarcastic statement saying, Hey, I'll give you 2,000 horses, but you don't have 2,000 soldiers for them, so what does it matter? Saying you have no manpower, you're too weak. And this last one is quite is interesting. Assyria says that God is on their side. And it's interesting because it's kind of halfway true. We're going to see uh, and that God does ordain all these things and He does use these evil powers for His purposes and things like that. But Assyria is kind of seeing it the wrong way. But in verse 10 they say, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. So Assyria lists all these things. Judah, you have absolutely no chance. Uh, don't try to fight against us. It will be better for you if you just give up. And what we see there is that what is important or what is not important is our own power. Uh, Judah has no chance against Assyria, but when they trust in the Lord, that's all that will matter. So the next thing that happens is Assyria tries to convince the people. They go kind of past the leaders and they try to convince the people in Judah to surrender. 
So in verses 11 through 17, they lay out all these reasons why they should just give up. They say, hey, if you just give up, we will take you to another land. It will be a good land. You'll have your own, uh, you know, uh, vineyards and your own gardens and your own cisterns full of water. All these really good things, uh, just give up. There's no point in standing against us. And it's not true at all because Assyria really mistreated um, their uh, captives, and this this w- is not how it would have happened. But what they're trying to tell them is that it's better to just give up. Why even try to do the right thing? This is kind of a, something that we're accosted with a lot from the world. We're attacked in this way from the world. The world says it's just easier to live like us. It's just easier to live according to your own desires and the desires of the flesh. It's easier to do that than to follow Christ. Why even try to do that when it's difficult? Just follow us instead. So the next thing that happens is Assyria makes their biggest mistake and they blaspheme against God. They tell them that God... So it's kind of funny because they've went from um, like, hey, God sent me here. God is the one empowering me to saying God can't stop me if, if you think he can. Like you pray to the Lord, but God can't stop us from taking over you is what they say. And in verse 20, who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hands. So what Assyria does is says, hey, all these countries we've defeated, their gods did no good to them, and we defeated them anyway, so why is Jerusalem going to be any different? And this is what we see so often from the beginning of time until right now today is the world just does not understand God. They do not understand His power and His sovereignty. They think that all religions are the same um, and that all quote-unquote gods are the same. And they don't understand him. Assyria says, like, why do you think your God can stop me when no other gods have stopped me? Well, the big reason will be because they're not real and the God of Judah is real. We see this in our world today when tough things are going on. When you think about situations like in Iran or in Myanmar, and you see on social media and other places where they'll say, we're praying for you. And people inside will say, we don't need prayer, we need help. And that is the world misunderstanding God. Prayer is the best way you can help someone. Prayer and getting God to be on your behalf is the best thing that anyone can do, but the world does not see it like that. So finally, uh, we get to, verse 30, or to chapter 37, and we see where Hezekiah turns to God. So it seems really good in this passage that you know, he's got this threat before him and uh, he immediately turns to God. It's kind of true, but you know, when we look at the historical books, we see that he did try other things first. He tried Egypt, he tried money, he tried several different things, and now uh, he's kind of out of options and he goes to the Lord. But still a great thing that he does. In chapter uh, 37, verse 1, as soon as Hezekiah heard it, that's the threat from Assyria, He tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. So he comes to Isaiah for help. He admits that they have failed. He admits uh, error and asks Isaiah to uh, go to the Lord for them. And something important we see here is in verse 3. It says, They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. And the reason why that's important is because when he says this is a day of rebuke, Hezekiah is admitting that these problems coming to Judah are a result of their own error. Um, When he says it's a rebuke, he's admitting we did wrong, we didn't follow God, and now these things are happening to us. So it's like repentance. He's saying we're sorry and we'll turn if we receive this deliverance. So he goes to Isaiah and he prays for help. Another thing we see that's kind of important here is um, 
that you need to pray for God's help even when it's your fault. It's kind of a funny thing to us as Christians a lot of times. Do you not kind of feel embarrassed sometimes to pray to God for deliverance from something that is completely your fault? Like I've been there before, you know. You do something that was really not very smart and then you have to go to God and say, hey, can you reverse the effects of that really bad thing that I did? It's kind of embarrassing. You feel ashamed. Like, man, why did I do that? Uh, Some of you, a lot of you know that uh, for some reason, for fun, I run really long distances, um, like 100 kilometers, 24 hours at a time. Um, and it's always weird to me. So I'm like, I'm in an hour, say, 16 of running. I've been running for 16 hours. My body's breaking down. I'm in a lot of pain. I always feel weird praying about that because I feel like God would say, I mean, last time I checked, you chose to run for 24 hours. So this is what you get. But we have a God that loves us and wants to help us even when we're facing the consequences of our own mistakes. So don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed to pray. Just make sure you start your prayer with, by the way, I do know this is my fault. So Isaiah uh, responds by saying, you know, don't fear. In verse 5, it says, When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard which came from the young men of the king of Assyria, have reviled me. So he's saying, don't be afraid of what they say. You know, God is sovereign and he's going to to take care of this. So that's what God does. There's a rumor that there is unrest in a different part of the kingdom. So Assyria kind of returns to do that. Um, So God has provided that providence. He has provided for them and gave them temporary relief. But Assyria is not going to give up that quick. And they send a letter to Hezekiah you know, saying, hey, don't think that, um, you know, this is over. Uh, we'll be back. Don't think you're going to survive um, our wrath like you think you are. Whoop. My bad. And he says um, there's something really important in, this, in these verses uh, that show us what Hezekiah has done. It says, the, the letter to Hezekiah says this, Uh, In verse 10, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So Assyria says, don't let your God fool you. Don't let your God tell you that that he's going to deliver you. And the reason why this is important is because hidden in this verse is that Hezekiah has responded to Assyria in this way. In these chapters, we see this kind of one-way communication. We see Assyria communicating with Judah, but we don't see how Judah responds. But this verse tells us that at some point, Hezekiah has responded to these threats by telling them that God will deliver them. He has said, we're not going to surrender and we're not going to give up because God has told us to trust in Him and that He will deliver us. So the king of Assyria's response is, don't let God fool you into believing that. It's this desperate effort to get them to um, surrender and to just give up and not fight back. So the next thing we see is Hezekiah's prayer. And this is a really important part of these uh, verses that we want to look at and and really get into. It starts in verse uh, 14. So I'm going to read the whole uh, 14 through 20 uh, of Hezekiah's prayer. So he's received this letter. Uh, that says, you know, by the way, don't think this is over and we're still going to come get you. There's no way that you'll be delivered. So it says in verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. 
And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of us laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So Hezekiah gives us this beautiful prayer, and there's a lot of things that we can take from this. Uh, but the number one thing that I really love about this is the very beginning when it says, Hezekiah received the letter and spread it before the Lord. So Hezekiah takes this letter and he goes to the temple and he spreads it before the Lord. And the letter's not important. The letter would just have been a scroll. But the letter is representative of Hezekiah and Judah's big is Assyria. That is the biggest problem facing them, the biggest challenge facing them. And he takes this letter representative of that and just puts it before God. And this is such a beautiful picture for us to see how we should be in our own lives the way we are in prayer. We have a God that wants us to take all of our concerns, desires, our needs, our fears, our anxieties, everything in our lives. God wants us to take it to Him and spread it before Him. You can just think about this vision as if you're in the throne room and you can just go before God with all of your problems and just spread them before Him and ask for help and deliverance. He says in the very end, He says, You alone are the Lord. In the original Hebrew, He says, You alone are Yahweh. Like you're the only God and you are completely capable of taking care of us. And it's just such a beautiful thing that as a Christian, one thing that separates us from the rest of the world is that we have a God that wants us to come to Him face to face and talk to Him. So many other people think God is this distant being that can't be reached. He's just completely separated from creation. And we have a God that after He sent Christ down the cross, tore the veil so that we can be with Him and commune with Him. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God wants us to do that. And Hezekiah has done that. We don't want to be like Hezekiah in the fact that all of his other options have failed, his attempts to pay off Assyria, his attempts to get Egypt to help. We want to go first. We want to go first, but we want to go before God, spread our problems, and let Him have this. So how does God respond to this? Verse 21 tells us something very important. It says, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is what I have spoken concerning him. So after this, God speaks a pretty long passage about what He's going to do to control Assyria. But what we see in verse 21 is the cause and the effect. Because you have prayed. God tells them He's going to deliver them, that He's going to rescue them from the hand of Assyria. And He says that it's because you have prayed to me. And it's such an important thing for us to realize is the power of prayer. How important it is that God does answer prayer and He does respond to His people crying out to Him. Because you have prayed, this is what I'm going to do. And um, you notice probably when I preach Isaiah, almost every time I have a quote from Alec Motier, uh, the reason is because he wrote the commentary that I use to study Isaiah, so I get a lot of his stuff. 
But he says concerning this passage, thus the way of believing prayer is the truly practical way of dealing with the harsh realities of life in this world. Believing prayer, prayer that is an actual, that you think is going to work, is the way that we should address our problems. If you're in a, in a small group with Harvest, you know, we started James, uh, and in chapter 1 it talks about not praying with doubt, that it's powerless when you pray with doubt and you pray as if nothing's going to happen. Uh, Mackenzie and I uh, prayed for many years for a child, and um, it didn't seem like maybe that was ever going to happen. As most of you have met little Grady, it did happen. Uh, but throughout the course of those years of, of trying and not uh, being able to, uh, to be blessed with a child, um, there was a lot of prayer. And there's two good examples of how to do it right and how to do it wrong in that story. I'm the wrong one, and Mackenzie is the right. There were lots of tears. Mackenzie would go before the Lord prayerfully, tearfully, crying out to Him, asking for this blessing. And always her prayer was just wondering when it was going to happen. There was any doubt um, that she would uh, be blessed with this. She thought it's just a matter of time. Whereas I tend to fall on a kind of fatalistic um, mentality sometimes that things are just the way they are and that's how they're going to be. And when I pray, sometimes that's kind of how I see it. I'm like, God, if you want us to have a kid, that's good, but your will, not mine. And that sounds really great and spiritual on the surface, but in reality, it reveals a heart problem of not being willing to just cry out and expect results. So when we finally got pregnant, uh, Mackenzie was just really excited, like, oh, wow, this finally happened. And I was super surprised, like, oh, can you believe this happened? Uh, last night, we were watching The Empire Strikes Back if you uh, know the second of the original three Star Wars movies. And uh, Luke is on this swampy planet with Yoda training to be a Jedi. And, you know, his ex down in a swamp. Uh, if you're not a Star Wars person, you're completely lost. He has a plane, a flying ship, and it is underwater. So uh, Yoda tries to get Luke to use the Force to lift this X-Wing up out of the water. And he can't do it. And he's really depressed about it uh, and just doesn't think it can be done. So Yoda, who's like, you know, this tall, uh, sticks his hand out, raises the X-Wing up out of the water and sets it on the ground. And Luke runs up to Yoda and says, wow, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. And Yoda says, that is why you fail. Yoda tells him that you fail because you don't have belief. And despite the fact that the force in real life would be the Holy Spirit and there's no Jedi and all that cool stuff, no X-Wings yet, uh, and no Yoda. Uh, in our lives, it's very important for us to realize that uh, lack of belief a lot of times is our biggest weakness, that we have um, limited God in our own minds, that He's going to answer our prayer and that He's going to uh, respond to our prayers in a powerful way. So the last thing we see in these passages is that Assyria defeated. Uh, the Lord sends uh, an angel and slaughters 185,000 Assyrian troops and they retreat. Uh, and for the sake of the history, Assyria never does conquer Jerusalem. Um, it's more than 200 years and then Babylon does, but that's a whole different story. But uh, they are delivered from Assyria and they're delivered from them from good. And there's two guys in this story that really uh, contrast each other, one of them being Hezekiah and one of them being Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah goes to the house of his Lord, uh, lays his problems before him and prays, and he is delivered. And Sennacherib goes back to Assyria, 
and goes to hell, and two of his sons murder him inside of his temple. Uh, and you see just this stark contrast of following the world and the false gods of the world versus being in the protection of the one true God. So there are several takeaways from this uh, whole passage and this little uh, story that we want to talk about. And uh, the one number one thing, we talk about this all the time, it seems so obvious, you know, do you really need to repeat these kind of things? But there truly is only one God, one true God. We live in a country and in a city where there is just so much around you uh, religious imagery that constantly, you know, is is kind of attacking you, making you think um, that there's all these different religions. You think of all the holidays, and you know, we have about one holiday per week in Malaysia. Uh, at least seventy five percent of those seem to be religious, or you know, celebrating Federal Territory Day. Uh, but it's it's always something like that. But there is only one God, the God of Jerusalem, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God that brought Jesus to save our soul is the only God. Anybody worshiping anyone else is wrong. There is only one God, and it is our God. It is so important for us to remember that. Verse 16 of chapter 37 Hezekiah says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Never forget that. The next thing is that God is sovereign over everything. In our worship time this morning, we sang a song that said He's you know, sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and all of the problems and everything. In verses 26 and 29, he's taught, God is speaking directly to Assyria. And he says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. God's telling Assyria, Everything you've ever done is because of me, and don't forget that. So in verse 29, he says, Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and put my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. He's saying, I'm in control of everything. You think you're so powerful. You think you're unstoppable. You have said that I can't stop you from conquering Jerusalem. Don't forget that I'm the only reason why you do what you do. God being sovereign over everything is a truth that we can't forget. And it's sometimes we just can't understand because we're just limited in our thinking, because we see suffering and we see evil and we see oppression, and we wonder how is God sovereign those things. But we have to trust that He is and that He will use them for the good of His kingdom. The third thing is that our strength is irrelevant. We saw in chapter 36, verse 8, where Assyria says, you know, I can give you 2,000 horses if you even had men to put on them. But that's what's so great about being a Christ follower is that it's not about us and it's not about our power. In the Old Testament, in Judges, Gideon has an army ready to fight for the Lord, but it's too big. God says, I, you have too many soldiers. If you win victory, you'll just claim it for yourself. So he makes him actually do some crazy ritual about <laughs> lapping water out of your hand, but a uh, different story for a different time. And uh, he like, narrows this army down to a real small number, and the reason is because God wants the glory. And that's what's so important is it doesn't matter how strong we are when we think we can't do something. We're right. We can't do something, but with God's help, we can. The fourth thing is that we talked about earlier, the world does not understand God. In, verse 30, or in chapter 37, verses 10 through 13, we see the king of Assyria talking about how he's destroyed all of these different nations and he's destroyed their gods and they were no good and they were no help. And that's the world thinking that it's all just the same. What's different about you than this other religion? What's about your God than this other God? 
And the world is always going to be that way. That's why when you say you're praying for someone and they're not a believer, they think, well, what's the point in that? Why don't you just help me for real? The next thing is that prayer should be bold. In, verses, uh, in verse 18 of chapter 37, Hezekiah says, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. Hezekiah is admitting this is a formidable foe. He's saying, God, I know this is a big problem that we can't handle ourselves. Assyria is dominant and Assyria is powerful. But he makes a bold prayer for deliverance anyway. And that should be our thing too. Never limit the power of God with your prayers. Never think, I'm not going to pray for that because God can't do it. Because that is nothing but false and a way to kind of make your, you know, probably feel better about your prayers. But you just pray for what it is that you need. Pray for healing. Pray for people to come to know Christ. Pray for the kingdom to grow. Make bold prayers. If you think, well, these people uh, will never come to know the Lord because they're so set in their ways, pray for them. Pray for their hearts to be softened and pierced by the gospel. The only way that you can see things be done is to make bold prayers. Don't just make simple prayers. Pray for the big things and pray with expectation that they will be answered. The next thing is prayer should be God-centered. We see Hezekiah's prayer is so beautiful because it's how many times he just talks about God. He says, So now, O Lord our God, save us from His hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You alone are the Lord. The point in deliverance, the point is why he's asking for what he's asking for is so that God will be glorified. So often... Uh, I think we pray like this. We, we close our eyes and we say, Dear Lord, be with me, be with my family, be with work, be with the church. Amen. We just think He's like a genie that you rub and, and ask for things. And that's not the way prayer works. We see in this prayer from Hezekiah how worshipful it is, how God-centered it is. You have to pray. Don't, when you start praying, just tell God who He is and mention it to Him. Make it God-centered. Make your prayers about God. And we see the next thing, prayer should be repentant. He talked about how in 37 verse 3, he says this was a day of rebuke and admission of guilt. All of us are sinners and all of us are broken. And when we go to the Lord in prayer, we need to admit that. We need to admit our faults and our wrongs. If you say, I have no sin to admit, that's probably the first thing you should ask for forgiveness for, is for thinking that you have no sin to ask for forgiveness for. So be repentant in your prayers. And the next thing is prayer should be worshipful. You should tell God who He is and how magnificent He is. 16, verse 16 in chapter 37, we've read before, but it says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, made the heaven and the earth. Tell God about His majesty and how wonderful He is and how great it is that He provided a way for us to be reconciled to Him. God is the only thing keeping us in this world. His hand has us lifted above. He keeps our heart beating. He keeps the breath in your lungs. And just think about how like, overwhelming that is when you pray to Him. Sometimes our prayers are so weak and kind of um, going through the motions. And I just challenge people to consider if you were actually, because of the Holy Spirit and because of our connection to God, we are really in His presence when we pray, but really have the image of being before Him as if He was on the throne and you were kneeled before Him. Would you just sit there and ask Him for a bunch of stuff? Or would you marvel in His majesty and tell Him how wonderful and beautiful He is? Really focus and concentrate and think about being before God and praying to Him and what you would say. One of the last things I wanted to kind of talk about was when it comes to prayer, a lot of times what we do um, is we think about the circumstances in the wrong way. 
if life isn't going great, we think God is not with us. It's always important to remember that God can deliver you from storms sometimes in your life, and sometimes He delivers you through the storms. He protects you while you're going through hard times. A lot of times we think prayer is not powerful, or we think God's not answering them because we think the things around us are bad, but we have to consider how He's protecting us even in the hard times. Another kind of funny example of this from my running background is I was running a race uh, in the state of Tennessee in the United States one time. It was really hot. Um, I'd been running for about 10 hours and was cramping. Body was hurting really bad, uh, thinking this couldn't possibly get any worse. And this girl starts coming up behind me on the trail to pass by. Now, that's another thing on its own. In racing, you call that getting chicked, all right? So if you're a guy and you get beat by a girl, you got chicked, and you don't want that to happen. So I'm like, oh, as bad as this already was, I'm fisting to get chicked. So I'm depressed about that. I'm depressed about being hot and crampy and all this stuff. And she comes up and says, hey, are you a doctor? And I say, no, I'm, I'm a preacher. And she says, ah, you can't help me then. And I'm thinking, like, well, you never know. You may have a need for the... But I was like, so what's wrong? And she says, she says, I broke my wrist. And she holds her arm up to reveal a clearly broken wrist. And she runs off. She did beat me, so I got chicked. And all I could think was, you know, as bad as things are, my bones are all not broken. Uh, I am running with a completely intact body while she's clearly going to be going to the hospital when she finishes this race. And it's important to think about this because it's kind of a, a real life thing that you don't, but things can always be worse. When things are going, not going your way, they can be worse. And remember that God could be just keeping you from that worse. My cramping quad muscles were no longer a real big issue when I thought about it. at least my wrists are intact. So St. Augustine uh, wrote a book called The City of God, and he's talking about um, how people respond to suffering. And in our small group, again, we talked about this, um, about rejoicing in suffering and trials and how hard that is. But St. Augustine's talking about the difference between how the righteous respond to suffering and how the wicked do. And he says this, Thus it is that in the same affliction, the wicked detest God and blaspheme, while the good pray and praise. So in the same affliction, they're going to go and you've got the wicked and you've got the Christ follower. They're going through the same issue. While the wicked detest God and blaspheme Him, the good pray and praise Him. Always remember that. What separates us from the world a lot of times is when things are not good and we're suffering, we're still praising Him, we're still recognizing Him, and we're still lifting up our concerns to Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank You, as always, for the opportunity that You give us, Lord, to come before You to worship, to lift up our voices in song, Lord, to listen to Your Word, uh, to learn from it, Lord. Uh, Lord, to just have our hearts changed, uh, Lord, these gatherings on Sunday are a celebration of what has happened all week, Lord, and we just pray that you strengthen your church to go out from this building uh, every day to impact this city for your kingdom, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.